Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Containing COVID, Beijing cancels flights and extends lockdown measures. Border battle, China and India talk de-escalation after a deadly dispute. Kicking off, the world's Richard Sports League returns to action and coming up. And you never want to be in because that means you owe somebody. And we don't never owe somebody because that ain't what suckers do, period. Come on. Yeah, man. (laughs) putting the fun in finance, at least we try. But this is the dad teaching his son the value of financial literacy. It's Wednesday, let's make a move. A welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to be with you as always. And we have a show jam-packed with innovative technology on things like testing, on digital payments, and as you heard there, some inspirational parenting in pretty tough times. Not necessarily that you would know that if you looked at the stock market gains in the last 24 hours. U.S. futures are once again green following yesterday's 2% rise, supported by that bumper bounce in retail sales during May in the United States. News that a widely used steroid drug may help treat severe cases of COVID-19. We'll discuss in a moment and more action from the Federal Reserve to support firms and not to mention talk of a potential infrastructure bill. We've heard that before, though, I have to say. No complacency on any of this from Fed Chair Jay Powell, who remains the voice of caution. He's back on Capitol Hill for a second day of testimony. Powell warning once again that the economic recovery will slow after its current snapback bounce. He urged Congress to provide more support. You know my view. I agree. Elsewhere, European markets continue to make headway. The Nikkei, though, over in Japan, losing a little steam after Tuesday's 5% gain. Morgan Stanley overnight assuring investors Asia's economic recovery will remain on track even if we see a second wave of infections there. That's an interesting point. And it's what we begin on over in China, the city of Beijing. On high alert, officials have grounded most flights in and out of the city and closed all schools. The Chinese capital seeing a surge in new coronavirus cases, more than 130 since last Thursday. Stephen Jiang is live in Beijing for us. Stephen, great to have you on the show. They've upgraded their emergency response level. Just give us a sense of what that means and for how many people in Beijing. 
That's right, Julia. The hundreds of flight cancellations you just mentioned are a result of the soft lockdown the authorities have imposed on the city of Beijing. It's a soft lockdown because they are not sealing off the city as they did in Wuhan. Instead, all non-essential travel is strongly discouraged. If you have to leave town, you must present a negative result from a test done within seven days of departure. Now, if you happen to live in a community where they have reported recent cases, then your entire neighborhood will be placed under a strict lockdown. No in and no out. And there are dozens of such neighborhoods throughout Beijing, and the number keeps growing. But for now, the authorities' focus remains to be this now-closed wholesale food market, where all the recent 137 cases have been traced back to. Now, that place used to house thousands of vendors and saw a huge crowds on a daily basis. So the authorities have been trying to find anyone who had been there since May 30th, and so far, they have found more than 350,000 people in this category. Now, the government says all of them will have been tested for the virus by the end of Wednesday. But Julia, this latest outbreak is already having a major impact on many businesses across the city. I was just speaking to the owner of a bar at one of the city's most popular nightlife districts. He said he was still sending out online flyers for his bar's programs and performances for the coming weekend on Tuesday when he got notified by the authorities to shut everything down immediately. And now not only he does not know when they will be allowed to reopen, he also has to have all of his employees, himself included, tested for the coronavirus at his own expense. So this latest outbreak definitely going to hamper the economic recovery the government here is so desperate to have, Julia. It's such an important point, so disruptive for businesses, a challenge for workers here too. Um, But you mentioned a really interesting point, and I just want to give our viewers a sense of the scale and the importance of this market. I believe the size is more than 250 football fields. It supplies 80% of the meat and vegetables to the capital's, what, 22 million people. Keeping this closed also has huge implications for for food accessibility. That's right. Officials actually acknowledged initially right after the closure of this market, there was some shortage in grocery stores and supermarkets of vegetables and other farm produce. But they say they have already deployed resources from elsewhere to uh, to make sure there is uh, not any disruption to the food supplies of the capital city. But still, you know, this is such a, a delicate balance they're trying to strike between rigorous containment measures and economic recovery efforts. You know, before this latest outbreak, Beijing had not seen any new cases for almost two months. So we were really started, starting to see things getting back to a sense of a semi-normalcy or new normal. You know, people were taking off their masks on the streets and shopping malls, bars and restaurants are getting crowded. Now, all of this, of course, came to a screeching halt uh, since last Thursday. So this is really the reality here, even though... You know, officials here were told they have to strike a balance, but they would rather err, um, err on the side of overcaution and overreaction because uh, they're just under such political pressure to have zero cases in their jurisdictions, even though that expectation is increasingly unrealistic. Julia. Yeah, uh, the beauty of a command economy here to control things like food supply and take this kind of, as you point out, excessive reaction if necessary to control it. Huge contrast with what we're doing in the United States. Stephen, great to have you with us. Stephen Zhang there. Now let's bring it back to the America. The U.S. Vice President Mike Pence is attempting to declare the pandemic under control, telling the Wall Street Journal there is no second wave of coronavirus. 
Right now, 21 states are reporting an increase in new cases. Ten of those states are seeing a spike of 50% or more in terms of numbers. Let's get some context here. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now. Sanjay, fantastic to have you on the show. Great to have you with us. Mike Pence there was pointing to states where we're seeing cases fall, but we just pointed out actually many states are seeing a rise in cases. We need your context because you tweeted out last night, we don't need to be talking about a second wave. The first one isn't over yet. Right, right. Yeah, it'd be a luxury in some ways, Julia, to talk about a second wave because that would give some idea that we've actually had this sort of ebb and and flow here. But if you look at the United States overall and see how things are changing, uh, what you'll start to notice, if we can put up this map, that the, the, the northeastern part of the country did have this significant peak here. And, and now you see some downward trends, but in the south and in the west, things are heading in the wrong direction, Julia. So, you know, we're worried in, in many parts of the country that we'll start to see the same sort of thing that we saw in the northeast in other parts of the country, just a, a little bit of a delayed fashion. So it's, it's not so much uh, the, the timing to be talking about going into a second wave because we're still having these peaks within the first wave. Let me just show you quickly, if I can, Julie, we put, we put these together as well to give you an idea of what waves really look like. Overall, this is the seven-day moving average in the United States, and it's almost become an existential question here. Are we comfortable with 20 to 30,000 people becoming infected every day? Uh, 600 people roughly right now dying every day. That's more people that die in 24 hours here versus the entire pandemic in other countries versus Italy, which we know We use this comparison because they obviously had some significant challenges around the same time we did. That's more what a wave looks like, uh, Julia. So so we're not we're not really in a position to be talking about second waves. There's no question as things open up more, as people are more out and about, um, we're going to have increased levels of infections. I think the metaphor, you know, in the financial sort of world would be, you know, you want to see keep them from going into exponential growth. If you start to have significant clustering in many places, you could have exponential growth, and that would obviously be a huge problem. You know, one of the other things, and the White House has certainly said this to dismiss the rising case fears, is, look, the more you test, the more cases you will find. Can you give us clarity on at what point testing brings those cases down because you're tracing, you're testing, and you're telling people to go home? right. Right. This is so crucial. Yeah, no... It's, it's, it's a, maybe a bit counterintuitive, but, but you're absolutely right. I mean, the whole reason you test is to ultimately bring the, the numbers of infections down. Uh, you find people who are infected, many of whom may not know that they're even harboring the virus in their body. They can be isolated and not spread the virus. So in many places around the world, as testing has gone up, case, cases haven't gone up. They've, they've gone down. That's what should happen. Where you are in New York, that's exactly what's happening now, where the testing has gone up significantly and overall infection rates have come down. That's good news. In many places, you have testing that's going up and cases that are going up way out of proportion. Hospitalizations going up. That wouldn't be influenced by testing. And in places like Oklahoma, which is in the news a lot lately because there's going to be this big political rally there this weekend, testing has gone down and case levels have really gone significantly higher. So it, it, it's, 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 I, I know it's a lot to wrap your head around, but I think the most important point is the reason you test is to bring case levels down, not up. You can't bury your head in the sand on this. You have to know what you're dealing with in order to actually bring those numbers down ultimately. Yes, if anything, you just bury your head in a mask. 
that's the end of that. Right. Talk to that's, that's right. <laughs> thank you so much, as always. You got it. Thank you. All right. Let's move on. The Indian Prime Minister warning China we won't compromise on integrity or sovereignty. Narendra Modi responded to a clash between India and China at a disputed border which left at least 20 Indian soldiers dead, according to the Indian Army. Take a listen to this. India wants peace, but on being provoked, India is capable of giving a befitting reply in any case. I want to assure the nation that the sacrifice of our soldiers will not go to waste. For us, the integrity of India and sovereignty is at the top and nobody can stop us from protecting them. Nobody should have an illusion or doubt in this matter. Sam Kiley joins us now. Sam, Prime Minister Modi also said, look, we want peace, but both nations accusing each other of provoking this violence. This is a prime minister, of course, in India that came to power. And we've talked about it on this show on a mandate, a platform of national security. How uncomfortable is this moment for him? Well, very uncomfortable position to be in diplomatically, where with that kind of bellicose threat of potential retaliation, he's in danger of committing himself to doing just that at a time when, let's face it, neither China nor India wants nor can really afford any significant kind of escalation over what in the past have been, frankly, border squabbles, literally ending in pushing and shoving and some slapping, but which... A couple of days ago, a couple of nights ago, resulted in the deaths of 20 people. Now, the uh, Indian authorities are saying that the Chinese uh, tried to establish some kind of post on the Indian side of what is called the line of actual control. It's about three and a half thousand kilometers long, this line. It's an unrecognized and disputed border area between the two nations, which has been the scene of the wars in the past but not uh, in any kind of significant death toll for really the, since the late 1960s. But as a result of this clash, which involved people being hit over the head with cudgels and stones, people dying of exposure, there has been an outpouring of nationalistic sentiment in the streets of India in particular, Julia, with uh, a lot of Indian military veterans demanding immediate retaliation in a military form against China. And of course, the Chinese almost inevitably replacing the men in uniform in public with the men in suits, immediately saying that this is all a misunderstanding and they want to go back to the long-standing uh, processes of uh, diplomacy that have normally de-escalated things. The Chinese have not confessed to any kind of casualties on their side. The Indians, of course, have got a wide range of reports claiming casualties. But uh, at this stage, it really does seem to be uh, almost a trap for Mr. Moody, who, feel, who may well feel that he's got to do something and further escalate. He has been sending more troops to that border area, Julia, as indeed have the Chinese since an earlier relatively uh, benign pushing and shoving incident uh, in May. Yeah, very uncomfortable mix of uh, politics, economics and diplomacy here. Sam Kiley, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. Football fans around the globe warming up as the world's most lucrative football league returns. The English Premier League restarts later today after a three-month suspension. Alex Thomas is live in Manchester where Man City will face Arsenal in around six hours' time. I know a lot of excited fans just to see the Premier League back in action, Alex, but it's going to look very different. No fans. 
strange to have so much excitement when none of them are going to be here. Normally, you'd expect around 55,000 in the Etihad Stadium behind me, Julia. But Premier League officials say because of coronavirus measures, there'll be only around 300 people. I'll get to those new protocols in a moment. But yes, the overriding headline is the Premier League is back after more than three months. It was actually called off on Friday the 13th, back in March. And it's a bit of a horror show for Premier League officials since then. Weeks and months of delicate negotiations with players' unions and with the clubs themselves. Other of the top European football leagues, like Germany's Bundesliga, have got back into action more quickly. But the Premier League had to wait until June to finally get that go-ahead to play games. There are still 92 matches to be finished. So we're going to see games almost every day between now, and we're seeing two of them, and the last Sunday of July. So a lot of football to be played. It will look very different with no fans inside the stadium. We've kind of got used to that, seeing those other European leagues get underway. I think TV viewers can choose to have fake sound pumped out to to them just to try and generate that excitement. Uh, The Manchester City boss, Pep Guardiola, knows exactly why football's had to take a back seat because he actually lost his mother to the disease. And his opposite number, his former coach, Mikel Arteta, who's now the manager of their opponents later on Wednesday, Arsenal, actually caught coronavirus himself and recovered from him. And his illness was one of the reasons the Premier League was suspended in the first place, Julia. Yeah, symbolic and important moment to be back. But obviously keeping players and all the people around them safe is is the most important thing at this moment. Alex, very quickly, most important question. No bias here at all. Will Liverpool win the league? I think it's inevitable. They're 25 points clear. They need two more wins. (laughs) If City lose to Arsenal, Liverpool can do it on Sunday after a 30-year wait to be champions of England once more. Hooray, she says with no bias at all. Alex Thomas, (laughs) great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to take a break. Still to come, the coronavirus flight away from cash payments. How fintech companies hope to take advantage. We speak to the CEO of Paytm Next. And a breakthrough in COVID-19 testing. I'm joined by the CEO of Oxford Nanopores. The company unveils a test that can be done anywhere. Pretty revolutionary. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stock markets look set for fresh gains in early trading today. This following Tuesday's solid 2% rally across the board, energy banking higher again pre-market. Also, some of the major retailers like Walmart and Home Depot advancing to optimism. I think the carryover from that retail sales jump yesterday. Retailers are saying government stimulus checks helped boost sales. We were saying that yesterday. Economists caution that sales could weaken if the government delays fresh help to unemployed workers too. Remember those um, bump up in unemployment checks ends at the end of July. In the meantime, cruise line stocks are pulling back pre-market. Norwegian saying its ships won't sail again until October at the earliest. It had hoped to restart operations later this summer. Now, the coronavirus pandemic has had a major impact on how we pay for goods, with many retailers shunning cash. That's accelerated the use of mobile payment services, and fintech companies like Paytm are hoping to capitalise on it. They certainly are. The Indian firm, backed by SoftBank and Alibaba, has gained hundreds of millions of users since the country's high-profile withdrawal of banknotes back in 2016. 
With strong competition, however, making a profit remains a key challenge. Vijay Shekhar is Charmer, is the founder and CEO of Paytm, and he joins us now via Skype from New Delhi. So fantastic to have you on the show. I know you do all sorts of things beyond just payments. Just in your own words, quickly, just explain what Paytm is and does. Well, thank you for having me here, Julia. And uh, Paytm is all about payment expanding into financial services company. So our journey, like you said, began with payments where we built person-to-person payments and in-store payments using mobile phones. And then we've now launched a bank and lending and insurance and so on and so forth services. And if we hone in just what you've seen initially on and throughout this uh, COVID-19 period, it's not just about customers wanting to transact and use cash less. It's also about businesses allowing those customers to be able to pay for things online. Talk about the services that you've provided for businesses and what kind of increased volumes you've seen. So uh, clearly people are uncomfortable picking up currency notes or plastic cards to pay and mobile phones, which sort of had become a common thing already in India, became a method for payments. So now we see that more and more, I mean, if I was to see the same store level, the growth has been 80 to 90%. And in some cases where the numbers were small, it has obviously crossed a couple of hundred percent growth also. So overall, we are seeing same store sales going up as high as 80, 90% uh, when people are using mobile phone to scan the QR code and pay. While one more service that we uh, got a pleasant surprise and we were very quick to launch and have been able to see pick up is orders. So when you go to, let's say, a Starbucks in Delhi, you can scan our QR code and place the order and then the pickup will be handed over to you so you can go back home. So you don't even need to walk into the store or get in the queue of uh, ordering. You can simply scan the QR code on the door and place the order and somebody will come and say that, sir, this is your order. So uh, payment also has expanded to sort of ordering system, contactless ordering that we've seen in the last few days. How many businesses do you have? Some of the latest numbers I've seen are 16 million merchants that are able to use this technology. Is that around the right number? Yeah, you're right. Actually, the number is a little more than 16 million, but you're right. 16 million is the number where the customers can walk in and pay using mobile phone. Surprisingly, if you were to look at the plastic network, uh, India is not very large plastic user. So the number of merchants that where you can pay plastic is a little less than 3 million. So the number of places where you can use mobile payment in India is far, far bigger than plastic usage devices. And talk to me about market share here, because competition in this space is fierce and I think what we've been through over the last few months is going to only accelerate the interest in this sector in particular. Yeah. I mean, Google Pay, Amazon Pay, WhatsApp has got 400 million users in India too, and I'm just mentioning a few here. You have some stiff competition. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think the payment in India has become like a, a playground for every global company. I'd say that in the last two, three years, we saw people like everyone that whom you named and some of the homegrowns also. But luckily, I can tell you that Paytm still remains choice of customers by far. Paytm is bigger than everybody else combined in the country when customers come to use Paytm app to pay a merchant. So the merchant payments, the payments that you do in a store or you do to a merchant, Paytm is a clear market leader with majority market share. Uh, We've seen these all people doing a very good job of expanding the market, if you will. 
and also add few more services like person to person money transfer in USVC, Venmo kind of services. So Paytm uh, focuses on when you are paying to a merchant and uh, other competition has been able to extend uh, market, get new customers in the fray, but because of the merchant network and the capabilities of adding wallet, bank transfer, card, all kind of payment to the consumer side, we remain the choice even today with majority market share. Okay, so it's a question of uh, hanging on to that at the same time as trying to make money because I believe you're still loss making at this stage. And I, I watched a recent press conference yeah. with you and you, you posed a question to someone else that I'm going to pose back to you. What's the business model here and how do you make money? Well, I think the business model very clearly we are learning from the rest of the world that payment services grow towards financial services. So we've been able to see our losses massively reducing. I can give you an example. Um, if last year, same month, like April, May, uh, actually we are in June, so I can look at the May, May comparison. Um, we reduced our net burn, meaning the uh, losses, if I was to say, by staggering 70% year on year. So we've been seeing the revenue increase and cost decrease because monetization pipe have kicked in. So services like banking, services like lending, services like insurance and wealth have started to take place and the customers have started to get, earn us money. Payment actually is always going to remain a zero revenue or a break-even revenue in the best case scenario for us. And for last three years, we had been focusing purely on payments. And since last year, we've started actually 2020 onwards, now six months have passed, we've started focusing on financial services and revenue has been fast to come in. Okay, quick fire round now because I only have a minute and a half left. Timing to profitability, thoughts on an IPO? Two years for profitability. 2020 will be the year where I will, uh, we definitely are on the path to report profit. And once we are profitable, we will start working on the IPO. Before that, there is no IPO plan. So yeah. maybe after 2022, 23, 24, wherever the time and it takes us. Get profitable first and then we'll tackle the IPO. Makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a new world. Vijay, great to have you with us. Stay in touch, please. And uh, we'd love to uh, keep up with your progress. Vijay Shekhar there, Sharma of Thank you. TM. Thank you. All right, the opening bell is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are open for trade this Wednesday. And as expected, we're looking at a rise for a fourth straight session. If we can hold on to these gains, the Nasdaq once again flirting with that 10,000 level on continued hopes for economic reopening. Some say yesterday's report showing an 18% spike in U.S. retail sales. Sales keeps the dream of a V-shaped recovery alive. Remember, the U.S. consumer accounts for some 70% of GDP. I'll keep stressing the global uncertainties. Retail sales have fallen for a fourth straight month in China too after that initial bounce back in Japan reported today that last month's exports fell almost 30% year over year due in part to weaker US demand for Japanese cars. Meanwhile, the IMF is warning that its upcoming report on the global economy will show a worsening picture. It says the COVID-19 crisis is, quote, unlike anything the world has seen before. The challenges remain. In the meantime, Oxford Nanopore helped crack the DNA code of the coronavirus back in January. Now the British biotech has used its sequencing technology to create a portable 
COVID-19 test that could be a breakthrough for broader widespread testing. The key here is the test does not require a laboratory because the company can analyze samples on site within an hour. Joining us to explain is Gordon Sangari. He's co-founder and CEO of Oxford Nanoport. Gordon, great to have you on the show. The science here is groundbreaking anyway, but the technology here is key. You're effectively seeming to bring the laboratory to the point of infection. Talk us through this, and is that correct? That is right. Um, so let me just show you. Can you see that okay? That is... It looks like a, a seat a Walkman with a video in it. But that is a DNA sequencer, a nanopore sequencing platform. And as you say, it's been used to crack the code of COVID. And what we've realized over the last three months is we can harness the horsepower for a DNA decoder where you're measuring tens and thousands of DNA bases to crack the code of the COVID genome to use a, few, a much smaller number of DNA bases to test for COVID in a decentralized manner. So we can take this system and put it into, if you like, a pop-up laboratory or an office or a factory anywhere and take the next level of infection control to the point of infection of the COVID. So there's quite a lot in there, but our eagle-eyed viewers will notice that there wasn't blood being dropped into that analyzer there. It looked like something else. And this is a saliva-based test, because as you pointed out there, the DNA sequence, you have the 30,000 sequence letters that represent COVID-19, and that's what you're looking for in the saliva. And this is part of the crucial difference here in terms of speed and ease of doing this test. That's right. So this is a nucleic acid test. This is the gold standard swab test that people talk about. We are trialing and we're very confident that we will be able to, from saliva, be able to use this machine to look for absence or presence in real time of of the COVID genome. So if it's there, then you have absence or presence. So it's real time virus checking. So let's imagine that a company brings one of these systems in-house. You provide a couple of technicians, I believe. Workers could come in in the morning. They could provide a sample of saliva. How quickly will they know whether they're positive or negative and therefore, I guess, could either go into work normally or have to go back home and quarantine? So in that setting, the what you would have is it's a Friday morning, it's your weekly test, if that's the frequency at which this ends up being used. You drop your saliva sample off in a bag that you spat into a tube first thing in the morning, and by lunchtime, you will have an answer back. And if you're positive, then we can see who you've been tracked and and traced around that day. They can then be checked, retested, but you can all be quarantined and sent home. And then we can see those who are not positive can come back to work and be tested again and frequently. And the whole premise behind all of this is that being able to test routinely and track continually will allow us to control the infection and stop it getting out of control. Yeah, it's this idea of multiple tests. I mean, this has been one of the criticisms, I think, of the leadership here in America, that you simply don't have enough tests or can't keep testing. But the point is, you're saying 
this kind of technology allows for that constant testing just to provide reassurance and, and contain cases if you've got them. Cost. Gordon, what does one of these cost? So, I mean, what, what, what cost to get us all back to work is the way I would think about it. We believe we can get this into the tens of dollars and we think that's a very it's competitive to other tests that are out there. But in terms of getting the economy kick-started again, getting everybody back to work, back to football matches, very excited about Premier League season starting tonight, <laughs> that testing and that sort of $20, that sort of price range, tens of dollars, we believe, is a compelling price point at which to do mass testing routinely. Yeah, cost per test there. Where are you with the regulators? Critical point here, Gordon. So we've done our initial technology validation and it, and it's, it's, it looks fantastic, you know, equivalent to the gold standard nucleic acid testing. We'll be submitting in the UK in weeks and then beyond that we'll be looking to get both European and US fast-tracked uh, applications in and really looking to deploy this in a matter of weeks. And if I can say, we do have to look beyond COVID because in the fall, we're going to enter the flu season and the symptoms of COVID and the symptoms of flu are identical. And, it's, and we are developing on the back of this platform a COVID and flu test so we can reassure people or emergency treat people if they've got COVID, reassure them it's flu. Not great news, but it's better than having COVID. So this is uh, about a long-term play because in addition, we will need this network out there because these pandemics are not going to go away. We've had SARS, we've had MERS, and now we've got COVID. And having you know that emergency preparedness and being ready with decentralized field deployed testing routinely and regularly will become the new normal. Yeah, we have to be better prepared this time around. Very quickly, Gordon, how many of these can you produce? What are your production capabilities, assuming you get the approvals? So we've not only thought about getting a test that works quickly, we've thought about how we can get into the millions of tests per month. And we've been building up the supply chains and getting all the reagents we need and all the equipment we need. So we expect to come out of the box you know, in terms of millions of tests per month. Fantastic. Keep in touch with us, please. Let us know when you hear back from them and come back on again. And uh, thank you for all your work, because I know the team, as always in these cases, has been working 24-7 on this. Gordon Sengera, co-founder and CEO of Oxford Nanopool. Thank you so much for joining us. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. Coming up, putting the fun into finance. How many of these questions can you answer? What's an entrepreneur? Entrepreneur is a person that organizes and operates a business or businesses. Also taking on a greater than normal. Financial risk. What's financial mean? Money. And what's risk mean? Chance. Come on. What does it mean to own stock? When you own a share of a company. Come on. I'm intimidated. This eight-year-old and his dad have an important lesson for us all. How to make stocks, bonds, commodities, but more importantly, running your life as simple as ABC. That's next. The economics discipline, like every other aspect of our society, does have a troubled history when it comes to issues of race inequality. There's a lot of 
work left to do, both in the economics profession on these issues. And um, uh, I, I hope uh, recent events are pushing all of us to try to try to do better. Try to do better. Jay Powell there giving evidence to a Senate committee on financial inequality, highlighting the risk that in this recovery, the poorest get left behind again. There can be no denying that there are staggering disparities in wealth and opportunity across America. So as the next generation face a future under a cloud of potential debt and job insecurity, what can all parents do to help? Well, get ready to be inspired. I want to introduce you to Kyron Gibson and his eight-year-old son, King. They spent lockdown learning about personal finance and investments and the results, as you saw earlier, took the internet by storm. Guys, great to have you on the show. I have to say, I watched this video and you both blew me away. Kyron, I want to start with you. What made you decide that you needed to get educated on these kind of facts, financial literacy and Pass that on to your son. Um, teaching generational wealth, um, economic power is everything in this in this world. Uh, with capitalism, you know, making the uh, rich get richer and the poor get poor. I just want him to understand everything financially, so he cannot be um, beat or lost. So he always know how to make a dollar and support his family once I'm dead and gone. And just with the kids watching, that's what it's going to be about. It's teaching all these children how to make sure they're straight up. The ability to protect wealth and create wealth. King, do you find this fun? Do you find finance fun and learning these things fun? It is kind of fun. And does your dad make it fun for you? Yeah, he does make it really fun. And what do your friends think? Do you teach your friends? Because some of the things that you were discussing, you know, a lot of people could look at that at your age and go, this is kind of boring. Yeah, some of them say that it's boring because you learn a lot of things, but you're going to have to remember it, like, quicker. So I teach them, I teach some of my friends, and some of them don't want to. They don't want to learn it. Karen, it's, it's pretty incredible. I mean, you, your background, and you and I spoke about this off camera yesterday, and you were saying, you know, you faced some challenges. You made some decisions that you regret, and you simply didn't want your son to be in that position. Just explain what that was like. Um, abundance, you know, um, me going to school, going to college, um, didn't take my grades uh, seriously, even though I was smart, had the highest SAT score on my college team, 1760. Um, all I thought about and cared about was either playing sports or, you know, music. And I want to expand every child's mindset on it and uh, my own. So while I'm teaching my son, I'm teaching myself. And, um, you know, so it's about abundance, life abundance and just living your life. You only have one life and you want to make sure when you're done, you leave a legacy and not for others, but for yourself and your family. And I'm just all about, you know, family ties and my son knowing to live his life all the way up and just expand his brain more than what a child's supposed to know, so. You know, it's interesting. There's a, there's a sort of social shift, I think, going on in the United States at this moment and people looking at things like racial inequality in particular. But, you know, I, I look at what you're teaching, King, and the things that you're learning here, and actually they're applicable to everybody that, that wants to increase their wealth, that wants to understand how to pay a credit card, not get into debt, as you, were, you guys were talking about in that video. Do you think this has a race component, or do you think your message is 
for everyone here. It's it's really inclusive. So many levels. It's um first of all it came with race. You know, um when you kill a black, you don't think nothing of it because we have no economic power. You know, so to you know, all we gonna do to some is they think we're gonna just march. What I'm trying to teach everybody in my community and also of all colors is economic power. So you can't just kill somebody to have economic power. If you know they have money to own, if they own government, if they own um, big corporations, and that's what I'm trying to raise awareness amongst my community, but also with all kids. Like I, like me and you discussed, I think if uh, it had to change, one out of one out of every three child is is uh, starving, is going through poverty, and I want to teach all these kids how to you know build themselves up and don't just because you're going through something right now like I did in my life doesn't mean you can't be here, manifest it, live it and breathe it. It's going to be boring. It's going to be hard, but you can do it. You just got to just take the, the society's prison off of you. So that's that's what I'm all about. And just, you know, inspiring and leaving a legacy once I'm gone for my son and others. And it's, it's, it's for everybody. It's not just for blacks. It's not just for whites. It's for everybody's. Um, intelligence has no color. And that's that's what I'm that's what I'm gonna keep preaching. I'm a radical with that. Intelligence has no color about empowerment and motivation. King, what do you want to be when you grow up? I think your dad's inspiring you to um, to want and fight for more, but what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, with everything going on, I hope I'm still alive. But I, I, I want to be a successful tycoon and produce uh, jobs for my people and my community. That's an amazing message, but you said something really heartbreaking there. Are you frightened at this moment? I don't know. She's talking about it. You seen like he's seen. I hope um, I'm still George, alive. You know, you seen with George Floyd. How did it make you feel? Mm, sad, you know, we discuss us being, you know, young black men. You know, that's why we doing what we doing right now to inspire everybody in our community that we, you know, we get some economic power and, and, you know, do what we got to do, like I discussed with you. We can stop this, you feel me? So that's what it's, you know, and he, he was mad. I showed him the video. You know, Angus, we still speak on it, but um, I just want him to understand not put himself in any type of situation or be any in any type of, you know, a low mindset where nobody can ever, ever do him wrong. And I don't care what color. Because every time we come out the door, the sad thing about it is I have to worry about Another color hating me, I have to worry about my own. So, and you know, that's, you know, it's. it's, Yeah, what you're fighting for here is what will bring change. Anger's one piece of it, but education is powerful. And that's what you guys are doing. It's a powerful message. Thank you for coming on to First Move and stay in touch, guys. Inspirational, both of you. Thank you. King and Kyron Gibson there. Amazing. All right, up next. Facebook allows users to switch off political ads as it responds to the storm over false information on its side. Mm, But there's some caveats. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Mark Zuckerberg says users can now choose not to see political ads on Facebook and that the company plans to help 4 million users register to vote. Facebook is responding to criticism over false information on its site ahead of the U.S. election and, of course, what we saw in 2016. Hadass Gold joins us now. Hadass, you can basically opt out 
of seeing information, but if the information's false, uh, it's still going to be there. Is that the bottom line here? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Julia, so if you're in the United States and you're already sick of the election, you do now or you will soon have the option to go into your settings and just turn off any ads for political issues from politicians or anything like that. Now, this was initially sort of announced in January where they would say they said users would be able to tone it down. But now users in the United States will soon be able to just completely opt out. But this is an easy PR win for Facebook because as Mark Zuckerberg himself has said, political ads do not make a huge part of their ad revenue. And also we don't know how many people will actually be going into their settings and turning off these ads, going through all those clicks, all those steps in order to turn it off. And if somebody shares a political ad into your newsfeed, you will still see it. You'll see a label affixed to it, but you'll still be able to see it. And as we know, a lot of the most explosive political content on Facebook and on Instagram aren't usually paid ads. And also, as you noted, this has not changed anything with regards with what politicians can say in their ads on Facebook. They are still completely permitted to lie, say what they wish in any of their political ads. Just now, the user has a little bit more power and they can say, I don't want to see any of it. Yeah, there's so many angles here for me. The fact that you've got uh, Joe Biden, you've got President Trump criticizing Facebook and yet at the same time spending millions of dollars advertising on it just... There's so many ironies here. It's tough to go uh, tough to go on about it and dig into the details. Google, let's talk about them instead because they're also taking action over a couple mm -hmm. of websites that have offensive comments in comment sections. Talk about this too because this is important as well. Yeah, so Google said that it is banning one site, a popular financial blog called Zero Hedge, and has issued a warning to another site, a right-wing news site called The Federalist, based off of some of the content both on their sites and then in, sometimes in their comment section that they said violated their policies on derogatory or dangerous content. Because for Google, they don't want a company to get mad at them because a company's ads appear next to some sort of dangerous or derogatory comment because they use Google's ad platforms. They're trying to take some control of this. So while Zero Hedge, they said, cannot be monetized, cannot use their ad, pl ad platform is being demonetized, the Federalist, they said, has just been warned. And the reason that the Federalist did not have any more action is because the Federalist just decided to take off their comment section and just to avoid any of this at all. Obviously, the revenue from such ad platforms are so important. But again, this could anger some conservative or right wingers who already say that these internet platforms are biased against them. Yes, censorship or quite frankly, just doing what you should do in some way, policing content. The debate will continue. Had us gold. Thank you so much for that. That's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash country. Max subscription required.